as I think you know, I'm Clark Irvin, a member of the Speaker Series Committee. Thank you for being with us this morning. Uh, all of us, someone that's going to close the door. Um, all of us, I know, are huge fans of the Bard. Who among us is not an enthusiastic uh, a reader of Shakespeare? And so uh, I'm delighted to have with us today the seventh director of the Folger Shakespeare Library, Dr. Michael Whitmore. Uh, he was the, formerly a professor of English at the University of uh, Madison, uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison, and before that he served as both an associate and assistant professor of English at Carnegie Mellon. He has a BA degree from uh, Vassar College in English and a master's degree and a PhD at the University of California, Berkeley. He's the author of several books, including Landscapes of the Passing Strange, Reflections from Shakespeare, and also Shakespearean Metaphysics. And we were just chatting about the two books about Shakespeare that he's working on now, and he'll say a word about that. With that, please join me in welcoming Dr. Michael Whitmore. Well, thank you so much, Clark, uh, for welcoming me, welcoming me here. It's great to see some familiar faces, and it's also a great honor to be in this church, speaking to this congregation. Uh, as I was preparing to speak to you this morning, I thought about the importance of this place and where this church has been placed in the symbolic landscape of Washington. It's something that I think about as director of the Folger, because the institution where I work was also deliberately placed at a certain point in our landscape. So if, if you don't know the story about where the Folger came from, uh, it was deliberately placed two blocks east of the United States Capitol. And that decision grew out of the Folger's conviction that any democracy really does need the wisdom of literature and the beauty of poetry and the lessons of history in order for us to really exercise our duties as citizens. And that is quite a grand ambition. I think it's also true. And so to have an institution that sits uh, a stone's throw away from the Jefferson Building, from the Supreme Court, from the United States Capitol, is not just symbolically important, but it does say something about how our democracy works. And I always am struck by the fact that in addition to huge personal sacrifice, uh, the country, when it was established and became independent from Britain, was really created through words. The United States Constitution is uh, an astonishing creation of, of the thoughts of great readers, but also people who understood how to craft a very powerful system using words. And then, when you think about what happens on the floor of the House of Representatives and the Senate, those are places where words, particularly the spoken word, really matters. And again, when you go across the street, when you go to the court, you see this passion for language and the challenges we face as we try to understand what those words mean. But in a country like ours, knowing what the words mean and being able to say them is very important. So let me back up a little bit and talk to you about how the place where I work came to be. And then I'll reflect a little bit 
on why I think Shakespeare is still important to us, and I'd love to hear your questions uh, a little bit later. So first, the Folger Shakespeare Library was created by a couple, Henry Clay Folger and Emily Jordan Folger. Emily went to Vassar College, where I went, and Emily got the only master's degree that you can get at Vassar College, which is a master's in English. And she wrote her thesis on the sources of Shakespeare's plays. Now, she marries Henry, Henry Clay Folger, who is an Amherst College grad. Henry encountered Ralph Waldo Emerson at a lecture on campus. He fell in love with the idea of literature. And then he went on to become the president of Standard Oil. He was a very disciplined and talented businessman. He also loved literature. So if you can imagine this couple, they do not have children. They live in a rented home in Brooklyn. And he comes home after, after a day at Standard Oil. He would meet Emily, and they would go to their partner desk and they would look at auction catalogs, and they would buy books. So I have the privilege of actually sitting at that desk every day when I do my work. <laughs> but if you think about the decision to collect books, Mr. and Mrs. Folger could have chosen to collect paintings. They would have collected significantly less, because art is expensive. And because of Emily's insight into the history of these plays and their sources, she was able to say to her husband, why don't we collect books connected to Shakespeare? And then she knew that the most important book to collect, if you care about Shakespeare, is the 1623 first folio of Shakespeare's plays. So that book, which is about this size, is a large format book and it contains 36 of Shakespeare's plays. It was created in 1623, several years after Shakespeare's death, by two men who worked with him and knew him. So this book is the source for us of half of Shakespeare's plays. There, are, there is no other print source for those plays. And without the first folio, we wouldn't have Julius Caesar, or Twelfth Night, or The Winner's Tale, or Macbeth. These are stories that we really can't live without. Uh, and I'm reminded of the fact that President Lincoln, uh, during the Civil War, used to walk the White House and the cottage and recite the words of Macbeth, uh, something that we have uh, benefited from since these plays were first published. But they would not be here if we didn't have this book. And so together, the Folgers collected 82 copies of this book. And just for comparison's sake, if you go to the British Library in London, you'll find three. <laughs> so there are 235 known copies of this book. They also collected the sources of the plays around this book, manuscripts, deeds, the deed to Shakespeare's house. They have the deed to the Blackfriars Theater, signed by Richard Burbage, who was the man who played Hamlet, and the man that Shakespeare wrote that part for. So slowly, they start to collect these items. They keep them in a warehouse in Brooklyn, and word starts to spread, and people say, 
there is something going on with Shakespeare. What will they do with all of that material? It turned out they had a plan. They were on Capitol Hill as they were taking a break. Uh, they left Union Station. They were on their way to their holiday house or their summer house. And they looked at the area of Capitol Hill and they said, we should place our collection in a building on this spot. And that decision then led them to create what is now the only Art Deco classical Tudor Stewart building that I know of. On the outside, the Folgers had initially asked, could we have something like a Tudor Stewart mansion? And their architect, Paul Cray, said, no. <laughs> that would be inappropriate in the context of the neoclassical architecture on Capitol Hill. But I will give you a modernist classical building on the outside. It'll be white marble. There'll be some beautiful Art Deco flourishes on the outside. But on the inside, I will design for you several historic rooms that evoke the age of Shakespeare. And so when you come, if you come, or if you've been, and I invite you to come back, you'll notice that once you step through those modern doors, you are back in spaces that could be Hampton Court. So a long Tudor gallery, which uh, traditionally has a high ceiling and oak, uh, oak walls and a vaulted, a vaulted uh, ceiling, a place for you to walk around, a place for you to see paintings, and that was initially what it was designed for. They also added the first permanent Shakespeare theater in North America. So that, that Tudor theater, which seats 220 people where we're still performing the plays, really is the first permanent playing space that was meant to resemble the conditions in which Shakespeare worked. And then finally, they wanted a Renaissance reading room. And while the public often doesn't get to see this space, it is a grand library reading room that looks like a medieval chapel. Uh, all of it designed with the idea of Shakespeare in mind. On the exterior of the building, Mr. and Mrs. Folger said, we would like our building to look like a book. <laughs> a specific book. Mr. Folger actually sent his architect a copy, not a real one, a copy of the first folio and said, Mr. Cray, I would like you to use quotations from Shakespeare's first folio and put them on the outside of my building. Not only that, he said, I want you to spell the words the same way they are spelled and typeset. And so he sent two flights of letters to the architect insisting on how the spelling ought to look. Later, Emily Folger said, the Folger Shakespeare Library is the first folio illustrated. And it really is meant to look like a book. So that is the first clue to our visitors from the outside. So you walk up to this building. Sometimes we're mistaken for a bank. <laughs> You walk to the building and then you see these words and you think, huh, that spelling is kind of interesting. And then they also had a series of sculptures placed just at eye level on the outside of the building, which illustrate scenes from Shakespeare. 
This was because they felt that this new popular form of transportation called the automobile would be bringing people by the building and they would want to look out of the windows so that they could see these scenes from Shakespeare. They were also offered the opportunity to use a miraculous fire retardant material called asbestos <laughs> to simulate all of the wood in the building. And if you've ever been in the Folger, you know there's a lot of wood in that building. Uh, Mr. Folger said no. <laughs> he, he did allow air conditioning, but only for the books. <laughs> so as you think of this building taking shape, the Supreme Court has not yet been built. The Adams Building has not yet been built. And the story of how we got the permission to build on that site involves the United States Congress. So Congress was passing a bill to take over, by eminent domain, that entire block where the Folger now sits along with the Adams Building. And Mr. Folger read about that, and he became panicked because he now owned the property on half of that block, and he was already getting ready to build the library. So he wrote to the Librarian of Congress, Herbert Putnam, and said in a telegram, I have a collection of immense value that the United States could not afford to purchase. It is my intention to make a gift of it to the people of the United States. Putnam immediately wrote back with a telegram saying, your note is of great interest and urgency, can we talk? And what happened was that Putnam went and persuaded the Congress to allow Mr. Folger to build on that site. And if you look at the congressional record, which records the reasoning behind that decision, the congressional record shows that they felt, and the Folgers felt, this is in 1929, that Washington, D.C. could someday become a city of culture and learning. So imagine this, at the time, you have the Freer, you have the Phillips, you have the Smithsonian Castle. You, Washington is not yet what it is now, which is a great, great city of collections. And at the time, I don't think they really understood how deliberate they needed to be, but as soon as Mr. Jefferson's library arrived on Capitol Hill after the first fire, that destroyed some of his books, that collection was followed by others. And today, all throughout Washington, all visitors and all Americans can learn almost any subject with the collections that are on the mall. And so I'm inspired when I see that debate uh, in the Congress because it was a moment when they realized that a democracy really should have wonderful resources for history, poetry, science, art. And that was one of the moments when they said yes. So as the Folger was being built, unfortunately, uh, Mr. Folger died two years into the building process. So uh, actually one year. It begins roughly beginning of 1929, and he dies in 1930. So Emily Folger finished the library. And because it was the Depression, the asset value of their uh, estate had gone down, and the initial endowment for the Folger that Mr. Folger left 
had now diminished in value. So Emily Folger took her own money and finished it. She also topped up the endowment, which is currently managed by Amherst College, uh, his alma mater. So as it was being built, the Evening Star, the Washington newspaper, was reporting on this interesting project where private citizens were creating a national resource really in the government's front backyard, just east of the US Capitol. Uh, and they were doing it as a matter of patriotic commitment to the country and as a gift. And so it's striking to me when I look at that landscape, and we've been talking about the symbolic landscape of Washington, when the Evening Star says, isn't it, isn't it appropriate that a city that has a monument to Lincoln and to Washington now has a monument to Shakespeare. <laughs> and that they line up uh, east to west. You can draw a line between the three of them. So this is really quite striking to me because uh, I love Shakespeare. I do not think of him as having the standing of the founders of our country. But in the early 20th century, that felt like an obvious connection. It makes me realize that maybe we have lost the sense that great leaders uh, and great thinkers are also great readers, and they are people who know how to use language. And so that's where I would like to finish. Now, in the 19th century, Americans uh, they didn't have the kind of entertainment that we do on our devices. They, uh, in the summers, sometimes would go off to places called Chautauquas. And in the Chautauqua movement, which was a self-improvement movement, you would go with your family and you might camp out in a tent. And then the evening classes, you, you go off and have classes in the evening, which is a much better alternative to drinking and dancing. <laughs> An actor would be brought in and the actor would recite five, seven speeches from Shakespeare. There is a quality of mercy or a tide in the affairs of man, to be or not to be. Those speeches then would be learned by those in the audience and they would become the amateur actors. And it wasn't necessary to see a whole play. In fact, most Americans in the 19th century who saw Shakespeare, uh, in vaudeville houses, theaters, they did not see whole plays. They were more interested in the scene. So you can think about American presidents and American citizens, future leaders, and just everybody who felt that they were needed something to say, learning how to say it with the words of Shakespeare. And that was really vital to the emergence of a kind of eloquence in the 19th century that we can hear when we read the words of Abraham Lincoln, of Frederick Douglass. These are people who knew how to build a sentence from the ground up and knew that the power of language is the power to move people with vivid examples, beautiful words, and striking juxtapositions. I think of particularly Lincoln and Douglass who are actually teaching themselves to become the great speakers and thinkers that they are in the 19th century. 
And we know that they are reading the King James Bible, they're reading Shakespeare, they're reading history. Alexis de Tocqueville, when he describes his visit to America, says it's a striking country, it's full of optimists and self-improvers. And even in the frontier homes, you find two books, the King James Bible and Shakespeare. And for those of us who speak English today, really, those are the two books that shaped how our language really became what it is. They were studied, they were read, and interestingly enough, the words in those two works were put together into sentences in roughly one or two generations. It's really the language of London in the late 16th, early 17th century. So why put all of those books, including an incredible collection of Bibles, which we have, on Capitol Hill? If you look on the west side of our building, which is the side that faces official Washington, there is a sculpture of Puck, Shakespeare's Joker, who's on top of a fountain. And then there's the only inscription from a play rather than from people talking about Shakespeare. That's also on the west side of our building. The inscription from the play, which is Love's Labor's Lost, is for wisdom's sake, which all men love. The inscription on Puck is, oh, what fools these mortals be. <laughs> so, what, very deliberate. Why put those facing the place, I think of it as words, I think of it as, you know, really facing the place where democracy is conducted with words and eloquence. Why, why, would you, why would you do that? Well, I think that they were getting at something about Shakespeare that still moves me today and that I think is essential. The great uh, Italian historian and political theorist Niccolo Machiavelli said that to really understand effective leaders, you need to find people who both understood themselves and who understood their times. And for Machiavelli, who used to put on his finest robes before he went into his library, because he was speaking with his peers from antiquity, he would walk in and he would look for examples from history, from politics, to understand what we can learn from the past and to start to fill in the gaps which he felt still existed. What is it that makes a person the right person for their time? And so he came up with this formula. You need to know yourself, and you need to know your, your times. I think that's the formula that Shakespeare's plays speak to. They give us a view of people coming to know themselves, whether that's Hamlet trying to understand what he needs to do about what the ghost has told him, whether that's Cordelia, who's put in the position by her father of having to lie to him, whether that's Othello, who's finally met the one person who can tell him the lies that will be very, very hard to resist. Those are moments that potentially all of us will have to face. And those are clarifying moments. So the plays really help us understand some of those things. They also tell us stories about the times. I think of a leader, Richard II, who was 
a particularly weak leader because he did not understand that in his orbit was a man named Henry Bolingbroke, who was a ruthlessly effective leader and was about to become Henry IV. You have to know both. And Shakespeare's plays are full of examples of people who either do or don't know who they are, who either do or don't understand the times they live in. It's not a coincidence that the Bible is filled with similar stories. Stories about Ruth or the faith of Noah or the testing of the apostles, wondering whether they will or won't deny their connection to Christ. These are also stories about how people are tested by their times and how they discover themselves. But I think the most important thing that Shakespeare does and still does is that he puts in front of us the, what King Lear called the mystery of things. There are certain kinds of questions that human beings will continue to ask and that we will never really answer. And it's the personal journey of every person who's a human being to wrestle with some of those questions, whether it's to be or not to be, to act or not to act. Do I speak up now? Do I remain silent? We won't ever have a final answer to those questions, and sometimes the answer to those questions comes from faith. Sometimes it comes from important conversations. It comes from learning from examples. But I think Shakespeare's great power, in addition to being a tremendously talented wordsmith, an omnivorous reader, a person with almost unlimited curiosity about human beings, was that he knew that we have to pay attention to these mysteries. And that is an answer to the vanity that sometimes we have as human beings who think we have mastered ourselves and our times and our own history. And we haven't. <laughs> so when Puck looks at the Congress and underneath, <laughs> there is something important about reminding the people with the immense responsibility and power of leading us in times of great prosperity and great trial to remind them that we are all humbled by these mysteries and that we must continue to explore them. And there have been many, many eloquent, powerful people who've spoken in the floor of the Senate, the House, uh, and the Supreme Court. But Puck's reminder is that we are all made fools of by history and by our nature. And that means that we need to have some of the humility that allows us to continue to listen and to explore. I think it's one of the great solaces that I take as an American, as someone who lives on Capitol Hill, that we have that full, almost like a bear hug around this bundle of knowledge and power, but also stories and literature and poetry and all those things that can still teach us. So I think we're fortunate to be where we are. I know that you're fortunate to be where you are, where American presidents have come here to take the measure of things and take the measure of themselves before they go to do some of the hardest things that Americans ever have to do. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to speak to you and I'd be delighted to answer any questions.
questions? So the question was, there are ways of promoting Shakespeare for the next generation of English speakers, uh, and actually for the next generation of Spanish speakers, Chinese speakers, and Japanese speakers, because Shakespeare is now a globally performed artist. I, I'll tell you, you know, Shakespeare is currently the most performed playwright in the world, and Shakespeare's plays are read by 90% of American school children. 90%. That means he is the least controversial writer <laughs> in America. And, and I do think that's wrong. So I don't worry so much about there being a lack of demand, because I think these stories are resonant, they're powerful, especially kids. They love theater. The ability to stand up and say words that are grand and powerful and have people you know, mow them down with your great words. <laughs> That is very exciting. The challenge is, you know, we have started doing all the professional development for DC public school teachers who are teaching Shakespeare. And we've actually taught 25,000 teachers to teach Shakespeare, and often we talk to the English-speaking union about that. So if 90% of American school kids are ready to go, but that first encounter with Shakespeare is boring, then we have a problem. And so it is my goal to open the Folger up even more. So we're about to add 15,000 square feet of new public space so that we can show our vast collection and really become part of the experience of Washington, which is, I think, where we belong. That's potentially millions of people who could see a wall of first folios and then see a theater like the one Shakespeare worked in. But I also think we've got to support teachers. I think the basics are there. I don't think there's a resistance to Shakespeare. I think Shakespeare sells himself. But we need to empower teachers and sometimes support them because it's really hard to teach Shakespeare. You know, I've taught Shakespeare for 30 years, and there's still some words there that I don't really understand. So they need to be supported, and we're trying to do that. Can you tell us a little about Shakespeare's personal life? Well, uh, we... We know more about Shakespeare than we probably know about other Renaissance writers. He did not get arrested, which is kind of interesting because Renaissance playwrights often got in a lot of trouble. Uh, Johnson was arrested, Marlowe was a spy, and ended up being murdered in a tavern, probably over an espionage intrigue. Shakespeare somehow figured out how to write these very provocative plays and not get thrown in jail. But he is a person who grows up in the countryside. He has this wonderful openness about nature and curiosity about the natural world. He comes to London. He becomes a very successful playwright. And then he retires kind of early and buys a beautiful home in Stratford. He also is a litigious man. He sues people. And some of the documents we have about his life are lawsuits. I think. 
there, there, we don't stay up late at night worrying if Shakespeare was someone other than Shakespeare. I, I think it's unreasonable to doubt that he was anyone but the man from Stratford. But he did collaborate with other writers. And so up to 30% of his plays show the sign of the hand of another writer. I think the last interesting thing about him personally that I find extremely interesting is that he may have either been Catholic or had sympathies to Catholics. And in a, in a country where the official re religion, as you well know, uh, was Protestantism, but in which there still were Catholics who felt the pull of the old faith, I think that was a very, very hard thing for the English. And I think Shakespeare was sensitive to it. But we don't really know where he stood. Yes? What can you tell us about some of the main programs of the library and any particular needs that it has? Sure. So our overwhelming need is to create physical access to our building so that more people can enter it and so that it's clear to people that this is part of the Washington experience. When two million people come to the Library of Congress, only 35,000 of them cross the street to come and see us. So we're looking for support and clearly financial support so that we can continue to plan and build this new addition to our building, which will open it up and make it clear this is for you and there's something in here for you. Uh, the other place that I think we're doing really strong work in addition to performing the plays on stage, uh, we have probably the leading Shakespeare journal and institute, the scholarship that's happening at the Folger is of the finest, highest quality. But I think it's the teachers who really need the support. So we have really started to think about how we can engage DC high schools, uh, junior high teachers. And part of our, our idea is to take all of the beautiful collection we have and digitally put it in the hands of teachers to help them with curriculum and training and then to make a visit to the Folger, say a 40 minute visit where you can see astonishing things that help you understand this writer, make that part of every Washingtonian kid's experience. And I, I do think we can do a lot better. So those are the areas that, for me, are important. Yes, in the back. You say a song about Frederick Douglass. Yes. What can you clarify that? Sure. So Frederick Douglass was a member of the Washington Shakespeare Society. And he was part of a group that met informally and they read the plays aloud. And Douglas, in the home in Anacostia, there's actually an illustration of one of the Shakespeare plays over their fireplace. So it's interesting to me, uh, I think Frederick Douglass was probably the most famous and effective speaker in the 19th century. It's just incredible power as a speaker. Uh, that he was looking to the plays as one place to understand and then take possession of the power of words. And so I think it's no mistake that the greatest orator of the 19th century was also deeply interested in Shakespeare. How do you see the future of the power of words in a culture today that is relying more and more on video images? That is such a good question. Um, my son, who's 15, when, when we ask ourselves, you know, a question that you could look up online, he doesn't go to Wikipedia, he goes to YouTube. 
which means that for him, that collection of videos is the repository of the world's knowledge. And when he learns something, he wants to learn it with someone speaking. Um, I'm of two minds about it. I think that what digital media has done, it's the second great media revolution. The first one was the printing press. And I think we're still recovering from the printing press because it allowed everybody to have a say and to say it to other people on a much wider scale. So uh, that's very powerful. The challenge of digital media is that it doesn't behave like printed media. It, we would say, historians of the media would say, it's more like an oral culture than a written culture. And just, I'm just going to nerd out on that for a second. But a written culture is one in which what I say right now, I mean today, and I'll mean it tomorrow, and I'll mean it 50 years from now. And Washington truly is a city of written culture. There are people who can say things on the fly that you could write down and carve in stone and go back 30 years from now and say, is this true? And they say, yes, it is. Uh, Oral culture is a culture where I can change my mind even as I'm talking to you. And I'm looking to you to either nod, and if I don't see you nodding, I'm going to change what I'm saying. <laughs> so it's very, it's very immediate. And what, I think what we weren't prepared for was the fact that digital media, which promotes short-form bursts of language, um, and, and also all the visual intrigue of face-to-face -face encounters, behave so differently, we're not ready for it. If particularly, we don't know how to deal with the factual and truth content of, of me. In the same way that when I'm having a conversation with someone at the water cooler and we're chatting about things and saying, well, I think this, and well, maybe I think that. Um, you can't take that to the bank in terms of governing. But it's a truly human thing. Humans love to just chit chat and change their minds and digital media allows them to do it on a grand scale, and it's captured forever. First thing you do, let's kill all the lawyers. Oh, no! <laughs> so I just cite that as perhaps the best-known example of a misconception of what is meant in Shakespeare. Are there other examples like that? Or well, let's go to that one. Uh, so uh, that statement is made during the... Shakespeare put together a couple of rebellions, uh, the 1381 Peasant Rebellion and the Jack Cade episode, which is when uh, a kind of a populist movement took over. And in this rebellion that Shakespeare depicts in the Henry VI plays, the idea is to get rid of all the people who read and write because they are the ones who destroy our happiness, our thriving. It, it's very specific. And so Shakespeare depicts it as a, a, a rabid mob. I don't think Shakespeare likes this position, but he wanted to show it, which is the desire to tear things down, particularly people with knowledge and learning, because they seem to have a power that takes things away from other people. And on some level, that's true. Power and language and the ability to write, they go together. So you, I think Shakespeare says, we can understand why Jack Cade's associate says, let's kill them all. But I think Shakespeare himself, when he shows crowds, and he does show crowds, was very, very wary of what human beings do when they get into mobs. He, he just saw trouble. 
So that's a mis uh, uh, There's another other kind of thing that happens, which is that we misquote Shakespeare. And the, and the misquotes become just as famous as the quotes. Uh, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him well. That's actually not what it says. It says, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio. But we, it's okay. We, you know, it's oral culture. We take, we modify, we push it on. And we misquote Shakespeare, but somehow it just seems to just stay in our bloodstream. Um, of course, you can misquote anyone and take their words out of context. Uh, with Shakespeare, he's been fair game for that for four centuries. <laughs> yes? You talked about Lincoln and Douglas being great orators. Mm -hmm. And um, do you see anybody in more modern times who you would think falls into that category? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so I'll pick the obvious um, two examples. Uh, President Reagan and President Obama were both very, very powerful speakers. Um, if, you, if, if you have the unfortunate, you know, uh, if you have to read Aristotle, which I did in graduate school, I, I actually like Aristotle, but Aristotle defined rhetoric as the art of recognizing the available means of persuasion in any situation which is interesting. He's not saying it's the ability to mouth off and say things that are blindingly uh, um, showy. He's not saying that. He's saying really what it is about is knowing what's going to land with people. I mean, what, are they, what, what is it that you could say that people will actually listen to? And I think as speakers, both, both of them were very good at understanding how something would land with people. Um, you can't persuade all the people all the time, of course. Um, I do think that there's a new medium to master, which is the short form digital media. And our current president is, is very adept at oral culture. I think that's one of the reasons why the norms of Washington haven't been able to adjust. Uh, but there is a kind of witty barbed eloquence that is possible with very short interchanges, and you see it in the contest of wits and Much Ado About Nothing and other plays. So I do think we'll find other kinds of writers who are good at that, but the ability to give a great speech that brings everyone together at a moment when those words need to be said, we can never do without that. Just can't. Fleur? Hi, Fleur. What you have positioned in that exquisite, breathtaking building of yours is a hotbed of activity. I'm, I'm there a lot. Yes. And I'm always wondering who are the scholars who are deep Who are the scholars? What have they produced? Well, that's a great question, Fleur. Thank you, uh, and fellow Vassar grad. <laughs> so we have about 800 scholars a year coming from around the world to work with our collection. I'll tell you a couple of areas that are becoming very hot and exciting in Renaissance studies right now. The first is the history of food. Uh, it turns out that we have the largest recipe collection, English recipe collection in the world. That's about 30,000 pages of handwritten manuscript, which gives recipes and cures that were understood by the female matriarch of the household. So what we've learned from studying that 
is that the prehistory of chemistry, pharmacology, medicine, and fine dining are all in these handwritten manuscripts. So Jose Andres came and started cooking out of the <laughs> manuscripts and putting the recipes in his restaurant and is now bringing his uh, World on a Plate class from GW to the Folger uh, for a session. But you know the, the history of what you put into your mouth, <laughs> there's so much connected to it. There's so much, there's so much history, there's health, there's wellness, there's how did that food get produced? So that's area one. Um, the second is the history of race in, in Europe and in America. So we've realized that there are stories of people in our collection that weren't recorded in the official life of the print record. These are people whose names might appear only once in an advertisement or in a judicial proceedings. And so that area is becoming really important because as collections like ours think about what stories can be told, we're really seeing that potentially everyone's story, stories that are inspiring, but stories that are also really challenging and trying are in that collection. So that's, a, that's an area of scholarship that has, uh, we've shared with the Globe in London and with some academic partners like Arizona State where a lot, a lot of this work is happening. Can you stay for a few minutes? For Absolutely. For further questions? Yeah. Everyone, please join me in thanking Dr. Thank you. Let's stay